Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. The Red Apple Media Podcast Network presents This is Protecting America. Now, here's Emmy-winning journalist Rita Cosby. And welcome to another edition of Protecting America. I am Rita Cosby. Well, some stunning developments in recent days as an unprecedented raid of a former president's home has taken place. I'm, of course, talking about the FBI swarming onto Mar-a-Lago, President Trump's Florida home. And joining us now to talk about all the big news and what this means is the great award-winning investigative journalist. He's also the founder of Just the News, John Solomon. John, great to have you here on the podcast. It's great to join you, Rita. You know, this is amazing. First off, what is your reaction to the fact that suddenly it's 30 agents from the FBI, armed agents, come on to a former president's home, a residence? This is unprecedented. It's historic. And it's surprising. Yeah, there's no doubt. This is a threshold we've never crossed before in American history. And of course, the initial perception a lot of people have, particularly those that support President Trump, that is, hey, this is like the banana republics. We don't have the current president try to arrest the opposition leader to get him off the stage. And the reason people feel that way is that they're actually prominent Democrats saying that is their goal, right? You have a Mark Elias, the guy who brought the Russia collusion stuff to the FBI through Christopher Steele and his Michael Sussman. He's out there saying, hey, this could nullify President Trump. So the Democrats are playing into the perception. Facts matter to you and I because we're journalists. We try to get to the bottom of the ground. What we have is a partial timetable. We're learning a lot. And all it does is beckon for more questions. And I think today, over the course of this week, each day you learn a little bit more. And I think when Merrick Garland got on the podium and said, hey, guys, we only talk about things through the court. We never talk about things in public on an ongoing case. I thought, well, you know, that's the way the Justice Department normally works. But guess what? For six months, I watched Merrick Garland answer question after question in great detail about the January 6th investigation. Oh, yes, President Trump's not above the law. Oh, yes, this is the biggest thing we've ever done. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're glad we got this guy. We got to get that guy. So he did talk when it was okay among his core base of the Biden administration about January 6th. And then when there are questions about Donald Trump, oh, we abide by the law. We only talk to the courts. And that's just simply not true. That was my big impression about Merrick Garland. I think most people can go back and watch the clips the last five months. He talked endlessly about another ongoing investigation. Not just this one. Yeah. And he could not stop talking when it was something that clearly was in favor with the Biden administration. I think about even after the Roe v. Wade, he came out and made a comment. But yet when there were threats to conservative Supreme Court justices, even Brett Kavanaugh having an assassin show up at his home, suddenly he's silent and he wonders why people think that maybe he's a political animal, John Solomon. Yeah, listen, I think everybody knows that the attorney general in this day and era has a political side to him, no matter what the president is. We've come to expect that. And that's why eight in 10 people in the Trafalgar poll recently released said that they now see a two-tiered system 
in America, two-tier system of justice. People do get treated differently based on their political affiliation, based on their closeness to elitism or the elites in America. That is the most troubling thing of the last six months. We're going to debate all the things about Trump and Biden, but the fact that at our core, the thing that made us a law and order society, that we believed everybody was treated blindly by the law, that that is eroding before our very eyes. That may be the single greatest legacy of the last six years. We're changing Americans' trust in the judicial system that set us apart from the rest of the world. And I think Merrick Garland has helped set the tone for that by talking all the time about January 6th, but, oh, I can't talk about Hunter Biden. Oh, I can't talk about Donald Trump, except I could talk about Donald Trump in the January 6th context. It's really interesting to watch him have a two-step. And the fact of the matter is most Americans remember this is a Texas two-step. Yeah. Are you seeing a double standard big time? Well, let's go back through history, right? We don't know what we don't know yet, but we know a lot more than we did because of the reporting I did this week. Let's go through the timetable. All right, the president finds out he's got some boxes in his uh, home that belong to National Archives. They send them back earlier this year. Here's the big fact that we broke in the last 24, 48, 72 hours, this sort of timeline in the middle. June, this has evolved over 72 hours. June 3rd, the FBI shows up at the president's home, three FBI agents and a senior Justice Department official, very important, there's a prosecutor there as well. They have a grand jury subpoena. It's a very cordial moment. The lawyers went through everything that the FBI asked them to go through, and they provided the remaining documents that fit the description of the grand jury subpoena. Think about this. For three months, we didn't know the former president of the United States had gotten a grand jury subpoena. But here's the big thing that happens there that most lawyers tell me is the big moment that shows a double system, a dual system of justice. President Trump said, hey, whatever you guys need, let me know. I want to help out. And then they say, well, if you're really serious about that, let's call your bluff. How about we go see your storage locker? And the president's lawyer said, yeah, no problem. Come on down. They gave them a free tour of the compound. They allowed them to go in the storage locker, even though the subpoena didn't require that. They signaled to action and word and cooperation. If you got any other issues, let us know. We want to work with you. A few days after that, the FBI comes and says, you know, it'd be better to have a better lock on that storage locker. Sure, no problem. Here's a bigger lock. Circuit Service installs that. Again, cooperative. A couple of days after that, the Trump Organization, which owns Mar-a-Lago, gets a request, a voluntary request. We would like to have the security footage that has covered that storage. No problem. We have nothing to hide. We'll give it to you. That is an unprecedented amount of cooperation under a subpoena that the president could have gone to court and challenged like he has others. He did it. Two months pass, and all of a sudden, on August 5th, they're at the judge saying, we have to. We have to go raid the president and former president's home, which, by the way, is a big threshold to cross. And then three days later, they wait three days after they get the permission, and they show up. It's as though none of that cooperation before mattered. Every lawyer I've talked to, Democrat, Republican, law professor, they all say, listen, this doesn't seem right. Absent an exigent, extraordinary circumstance, there's no chance that the president wasn't going to keep continuing, and they should try to enforce the subpoena, go back, make another attempt. You don't just go raid because you want to. And here's the other thing. If it was an exigent circumstance, right, maybe there was something urgent, they got the warrant on Friday, they waited and yawned until Monday to execute it. They didn't seem to have a sense of urgency after they got the warrant. The legal experts thus far are very concerned by the way the Justice Department and the FBI act. And that includes a lot of Democrats like Alan Dershowitz and Jonathan Turley. They don't like this, even though they wouldn't vote for President Trump. Yeah, that's stunning when you talk about the timetable, that the warrant, you say, was signed, and now we know that it was by A.G. Garland. He basically said, yeah, he was overseeing it. So he signs the warrant on Friday. You're right. If it was so urgent, why suddenly send 
30 agents at 630 in the morning, armed agents. And uh, yeah. from by all accounts, why did they wait till Monday if it was so urgent? What is it? What do we know? And, well, and what was it, a bonfire that they were planning or what's the deal, <laughs> you know? Uh, listen, I asked this yesterday because in the last couple of days, every time I talk to someone, I'll say, all right, you know, this timetable, if it's so important that you don't trust the president of the United States, you think he's going to get rid of something, destroy something, why don't you go there right after you get it? Oh, we were trying to orchestrate this so this would be low impact for the media, meaning the media wouldn't detect it. All right, so you're so lacking of concern. This is a government officials explaining this to me. You're so urgent, you got to get an unprecedented raid on the president of the United States, former president of the United States. But then you can wait three days because we want to manage the media manipulation of this. I don't get that. That's not how. Well, you know, when a drug search warrant is issued, you know what happens like 10 minutes later, they're knocking in the door, right? There's something about the way the FBI has acted over the last two months, the Justice Department, that doesn't match the way they normally work. And I know Merrick Garland wants to believe, hey, we handle this like every other case. First, it's not like every other case. And secondly, his own words are contradicted by the facts that are now in the public record. Yeah, and it is stunning, as you know, to go into a former president's home and search, you know, different areas, just even on the face of it. How could they ever think it would be low key? When I was hearing yeah, the attorney exactly. general say, oh, well, we went through, we wanted to be the least intrusive. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? You're going into the president's home. It's never going to be low key. To me, it's it's preposterous to say that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And most uh, pundits, even on the left, are scratching their head at that one. And listen, we have to understand. Well, I know a few things about the search warrant. I know what the crimes are that are listed on the search warrant. I've been able to confirm this with government officials and private lawyers. There are two alleged crimes they're looking at. One is theft under the Presidential Records Act, meaning some documents haven't been returned that belong to the archives. That is a non-enforceable offense. There's not a whole lot of big enforcement cases on it. Theoretically, you could find, theoretically, maybe they could put you in prison. It's not a crime we prosecute very often, and it's certainly not one that we knock doors in for on a regular basis or even occasionally. The second crime is Classified Information Protection Act. The president was still in possession of classified documents, and they should be in the possession of the security committee. There's a problem with that. If you're Sandy Berger, the old Clinton National Security Advisor, when you stuffed those documents into your pants and stole them from the National Security Advisor, you weren't a declassifying authority. He was just a civilian. President Trump is the ultimate declassifying authority for his own documents. What has not been ascertained, as far as I can tell in talking to government officials, has anyone asked if President Trump verbally declassified these documents as he was leaving the office? And these are declassified, I'm taking with me. Because by the way, that's all the law says that has to happen. I went and looked at some of these, the, the famous executive order. It's actually George Bush who wrote it. The president and vice president can instantly declassify things. They don't have to go through the process everybody else does. President Trump was the ultimate declassifying authority. One thing we can't get answered is whether he may have declassified these, and just because the markings on them doesn't mean they weren't declassified. We're going to have to get to the bottom of those sort of issues in the next few weeks. It doesn't look like the Justice Department did. So would we know if he had verbally declassified, and he would have to do it while he was president, correct? Yeah, you can't do it afterwards, right? I mean, you certainly have some say over it. You can go to the current president and say, hey, my stuff, would you declassify this for me? But when you are the president, the empowered president, which the president was until noon and January 20th, 2021, and these boxes left the White House before then, one of the things we don't know, people like Cash Patel, who was very close to the president towards the end of his tenure, say, listen, I'm told, I know, I saw the president, I'm declassifying things. So there are some factual things that aren't yet in the record that we don't know about. But then there's the second question, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump. 
Let's take the first one. Hillary Clinton was under grand jury subpoena back in the 1990s for her Rose Law Firm billing records. She didn't turn them over. A White House steward found them on her coffee table in the White House residence. It is clear that Mrs. Clinton had records in her possession that were supposed to be subject to the grand jury. Now, what did the United States government do then? They didn't send 30 agents to the White House and search the White House unannounced with a search warrant. They worked through Clinton's lawyers and Mrs. Clinton's lawyers Ken Starr, the white one, but to secure those documents and to uh, make sure that nothing else was in the possession of them. That's a typical way that things usually go when you have a government or former government official. 20 plus years later, let's fast forward to August of 2015, seven months ago this month. I broke the story. I remember it. That Hillary Clinton's private email server had classified information on it. And here's the story. I, I went and got the clip the other day. It's so funny to remember this. When they found out, oh, my God, Hillary Clinton has classified emails on a private server outside all of the protocols of the United States, easily hackable. Here's what the FBI said. Keep them. Give them to your lawyer. Put them on a thumb drive. Give them to David Kendall, your lawyer. We'll give him a safe and he can keep them in your office. They didn't knock down Chappaqua and come barging in at 630 at a.m. So if you want to judge the Justice Department and FBI on how they handled prior cases that have very similar overtures, a grand jury subpoena, President Trump got one. Hillary Clinton got one. Uh, classified documents belonging to U.S. government. Hillary Clinton had some. Donald Trump had some. Hillary Clinton got treated entirely different. And Senator Chuck Grassley just submitted over the last couple of days some questions to FBI Director Chris Wray. They're really thoughtful questions. One of them is, can you just explain for me why Hillary Clinton got treated this way? Donald Trump got treated this way because they both seem to be in similar circumstances. I think that's a question a lot of Americans are asking. Yeah, there are so many people who just see this as overreach. And from a political standpoint, it seems to be backfiring, too. And we've yeah. been seeing a number of people in the Republican Party. This has basically galvanized and united the Republican Party in so many yeah. ways. What's your reaction? Well, listen, I got to give credit to the Justice Department. They did something that hundreds of Republicans couldn't. They got Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump to agree on something. Mitch McConnell's out there defending President Trump. We used to call him cocaine Mitch. The entire Republican Party has come together. And you know what? I think it's beyond just defending Donald Trump. I think the party of that is the Republican Party is the party of liberty. At its roots, it values small government protecting the individual's rights. And when they see one of the most powerful men in the world can't be protected from a raid that does seem to be questionable. They're saying this, and a lot of the Republicans, yeah, they defend President Trump, but they add this language. If it can happen to him, it could happen to you and I. And I think at the end of the day, the unity goes beyond even just supporting Donald Trump. It's the mere idea that the president is sicking his Justice Department or his administration is sicking the Justice Department on the political opposition leader. And over crimes that previously have been treated differently, I think that's why the Republicans are so united. Yeah, they're seeing a double standard. And also President Trump, who very well is not just a former president, he looks like he's going to be a future presidential candidate. He sure. may announce sooner than later now, don't you think? It's possible, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that equation. One of them is once you announce, you start spending your 2024 limited campaign funds in 2022. So he might wait on that. But listen, everyone who met with him for dinner earlier this week, I think Tuesday night or Wednesday night, he had a dinner up in New Jersey. And a lot of Congress people came back. I had several of them on my show over the last couple of days. Claudia Tenney, Brian Babin, they're like, hey, listen, we don't want to spoil the president's announcement. I mean, if you ask me, 
he's in. So I think he left the impression he's coming in. But the official announcement date that sometimes is driven by financial and fundraising considerations, legal considerations. But no matter what, at the moment this raid occurred, there is nobody in the Biden administration that can look with a straight face and say, we don't know that it's a very strong possibility he's going to run against Donald Trump. And in the meantime, the Biden administration, John Solomon, is acting like, oh, we don't know anything about it. You know, the president goes on vacation, makes it sound like he had no clue about any of this. I know that's what he's saying, and that's what the White House is saying. I find Mm -hmm. that hard to believe. Yeah, so listen, I'm always a skeptic, so I don't trust anything anyone says. And my mother said, come to dinner. I say, why? So I'm always, you know, I always have this natural cynicism. I've done a lot of reporting on this. I believe uh, from the reporting I've done, including people that have no reason to protect the president, they're neutral on this. I don't think uh, the president was told. Uh, I think there was an intentional effort to make sure he would have plausible deniability. He didn't know about something that was happening to his chief political rival. It's likely, this is what normally happens, uh, according to people who are there and, and what people are telling me. The Justice Department probably told the White House counsel, the White House counsel probably made the decision, you know what? Until this becomes a need-to-know thing, I don't think we tell the president because then he's knowing about something happening to his rival. I think that that discipline probably happened here. The Democrats know if they're lying about this that in six months when Republicans are in charge, they're going to find out. I think from all the reporting I've done, including talking to people at the Justice Department, I don't think any notification went beyond the White House counsel's office. But listen, we'll keep trying to find that answer and nail it down. We have FOIA. We have a lot of things that we can use to find out in the future. Is your impression that what they're looking for is, and I'm talking about obviously DOJ and FBI, are they looking for a single document? Are they looking for certain documents? And what about this word of a mole? Yeah, listen, I don't think I'd use a mole or confidential human source based on what I've been told. And that same story, by the way, that claimed that there was a confidential human source mole also made the claim that Merrick Garland was out of the loop. And we saw that to be knocked down in the last few days with Garland saying, hey, I did approve this. So when you see a story and one of the big facts are wrong and you got to take a deep breath and say, well, maybe nothing else is right. What I've reported from multiple sources that I trust and have been accurate over years for me is that around the time that the grand jury subpoena was executed, the Justice Department FBI came into information from a human, a witness, you can call them whatever you want, source, mole, witness, but probably not a confidential human source on the FBI's payroll that, hey, I think he still has some documents. This is where he would typically store them. They drop the subpoena. They get some things back. All right, that seems to be proof that he still has some more documents left. I think they debate it for some time. And then because the 90-day window, the law says you can't do things political 90 days before election unless it's extraordinary, they were one day away from that. They're like, oh, we better do the raid. And I think they just jumped into action and did it. But I think there is some human testimony, somebody calling into question the idea that maybe the president has intentionally some other things. What argues against that is, well, the president had like, come look, go in my locker. You don't even need me. I won't even show up. Just go to the locker. Someone's doing that. You think that they would be very careful not to make that offer. And there's also the, you know, agents are trained, consciousness of guilt. Did the president exhibit consciousness of guilt? What I heard is the president was like, I don't care if there's anything left, take it, go get it. I don't care. So I think the big question we're all going to face over the next week or two or three is, did the FBI, when they made their search warrant application, which, by the way, is probably not going to be released immediately, 
Did they tell the judge everything? Judge, we think he has documents. We got this a witness saying this. We did a subpoena. Did they tell him, oh, the president brought us in and told us he can go anywhere? And oh, we searched this place without cooperatively, without any objection from the president just a couple months ago. It'll be very interesting to see if that magistrate judge has that level of information. Absolutely, because otherwise, why was it so chaotic suddenly? You know, if yeah. somebody's acting like, hey, come on in. When do you think we might get those documents? We know that the That's White House question. and, yeah, what's your, what's your timetable? There's going to be enormous pressure starting with lawsuits and requests made by the New York Times, Judicial Watch, Tom Fitton and others to force that out. Typically, the affiant, the FBI affiant thing often can be withheld for weeks or months or at least until someone's charged. They can argue that it's an ongoing investigation. It'll be interesting in this case. And one thing that might trigger it, if the judge now has read some of the press accounts like, hey, wait a second, what's this June 3rd thing? He can do a thing called a show cause hearing. Call everybody together and say, listen, I've made my decision on X, and now I'm hearing Y. I want to know what's really going on. And that could lead to a decision by the judge to to release more than just the search warrant itself. The search warrant's going to basically say we're, we're going to search all these premises for box, and here are the statutes that are involved. And, and we pretty much know what that is. It's that affidavit that becomes so important. And remember, the reason that so many people are distrustful, it was the affidavit in support of the FISA warrants. The reason why we need to get these FISA warrants to Pierce Carter Page's privacy and investigate the Trump organization, it was those search warrant applications where there were grave omissions, falsities and grave omissions. And the search warrant system works on an honor system. You've got to tell the judge everything. And if, given there's a history of the FBI not doing that, that's why so many people want to fight for that. It'll be very interesting to see where the judge ends up on this. It's also be interesting to see, does the judge stay on this case? And why is that? Well, in the year before he became a judge in 2018, a magistrate, he put out a Facebook post directly challenging the moral fiber of President Trump. He actually said President Trump had no morality when compared to a guy like John Lewis. That is a statement of bias that most judges probably would step aside from. He didn't in this case, but six weeks before it, he did. He actually stepped out of a case where Donald Trump had sued Hillary Clinton claiming he was wronged in the Russia collusion case. And in that case, the very same judge, the magistrate, Judge Bruce Reinhardt, said, you know what? I can't guarantee my impartiality. I'm asking, formally withdrawing. And he withdrew just six weeks before he signed this warrant. A lot of people are looking at saying, I don't understand this. And I think the judge himself is going to face some questions over the next few weeks as well. There are some serious questions, just like you said. I mean, if he recused himself there, certainly on something like this, it should have been a big neon sign. Yeah, you're exactly right. And these are the questions. Listen, we learned in Russia collusion, what you often see at first isn't what you get, particularly in this era of misinformation and leaks that sometimes aren't true. I think we all have to wait and keep gathering facts and then make an educated decision after we get a little bit more information. We kind of know what we need now, right? We have a search warrant application, judges conflict. What do they find at the compound? What are the crimes? We'll keep scratching at that, but everyone should stay calm. This is going to take some time. And I think over time, we're going to get an honest answer. We'll force it out. Congress has its ability to get its answers. And then we'll be able to make a much better educated decision. It's just so hard right now in the emotion of this moment to say this is totally wrong or this is totally right. 
I think we got to get those facts and then we can judge them. We've been through this with Russia collusion. I think we'll get through this and, and find the truth at some point. Yeah, let's hope so for obviously justice for this president, justice for America. And so people have faith in all of these agencies involved, because right now we're scratching our heads. There's a lot of questions. John Solomon, so great to have you here, the great investigative journalist, founder of Just the News. And you have broken so many great scoops on this. And we are so glad to have you here on this podcast, Protecting America. Thanks so much, John Solomon. My pleasure. Great job. Great to always join you, Rita. And everybody, I'll be back soon with another great edition of Protecting America. And of course, you can catch me every weeknight, 10 p.m. to midnight on the legendary WABC Radio. This is Rita Cosby, and thanks for all you do to protect America.